I'm Nick Harcourt and welcome to another episode of The Sound of Success, the podcast where we talk with movers, shakers and just plain cool people about music. Patti Smith is a singer-songwriter, poet, author and visual artist who was at the forefront of the New York City punk movement with her 1975 debut album Horses announcing her arrival, known for fusing rock and poetry in her work. She also had a hit song in 1978 with Because the Night, which she co-wrote with Bruce Springsteen and has carved out a career that allows her to speak truth to power in and outside of her work. The French Ministry of Culture made her a commander of the, and you're probably going to have to correct me on the pronunciation here, but I'll give it a go. Audre des Arts et des Lettres. That's close enough. They have also uh, given me, uh, uh, last month, they gave me the Legion of Honor, which is quite a beautiful, uh, actually, I'm proud of it. I'm sorry to <laughs> intercede. No, that's wonderful. So that was in 2005. And then the, this major honor just happened just this year? Yes. And, uh, you know, a few months ago. Yes. In 2007, Patty was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Her memoir, Just Kids, documenting her relationship with friend and artist Robert Maplethorpe, won the National Book Award in 2010 and the Polar Music Prize in 2011. Her most recent book is Year of the Monkey. These are just a few of the fabulous things I get to say <laughs> when I introduce her to our audience. Patty, welcome. And thanks for joining me on the podcast. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I was listening to that, to, the, to your list. And uh, yeah, sometimes one... If you're having a dry period, you feel like you haven't done anything. So it's it's nice to hear such a um, a reaffirming list of things. So thank you. As we're recording this, you're getting ready for some upcoming live shows here in the U.S. after a summer tour in Europe. Uh, I know you did a few big shows in London and Paris in October of 2021. How has it been going back into into Europe? I know that you were telling me before we started recording this podcast that it was very hot this year. But how has it been foremost as an artist and a performer? And, and secondly, as an American dropping out of the noisy zoo of the States today and uh, being in Europe where the feeling is very different? Well, and when I went in October, we... Uh... We were doing jobs that we were supposed to do in 2020, and one was Albert Hall. We did two nights in Albert Hall and a big show in Paris. And I have to say, I had no idea how we would be received. I had no idea what the mood of the people would be. And it, they were all spectacular. I mean, you know, I feel sometimes like I'm the person who reviews the people. The, the people were just I mean, I, they had me in tears. They were were so responsive and singing along with us and just so physical. And then in summer, I wondered what kind of reception we would have because the heat. I mean, it was we played in Pompeii and it was 101 degrees and playing in Vienna and 97 degrees. And uh, I thought these poor people, but we all got through the heat we barreled on through and the the concerts were they were fantastic they um it, it i felt like the people really needed to express themselves they really needed to feel um the unity that live music gives them going back to places that you've uh, experienced in the past as well i follow you on instagram and i want to talk about your instagram book actually coming up in a little minute but i see where you go and, and i see your your photographs of the places you go and you're somebody who definitely explores the cities that you visit right absolutely that's why i love europe because of course i'm you know there there's so much every city is like a cultural treasure uh, you go into any place in Italy, you walk in a church and there's a Caravaggio. So um, I did 
have to monitor myself because of the heat. I don't do well in heat, but I would allow myself to go to one place. My son and I in Vienna went into their great historical museum, and my son was so happy because he got to see the sword of Charlemagne. And But I couldn't do my normal kind of, you know, meandering and roaming about because of the heat, but I was still able to sit in a cafe and write and go to a church and see a painting or or look out the window and see uh you know the sea whatever but it it wasn't my usual i didn't have that you know my 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 usual time and and ability to do all the things i wanted we were in prague and i really wanted to visit the grave of kafka but again in in the extreme heat i had to sort of monitor where i went but I enjoyed every single city, just looking out the window, architecture, new architecture, that's ancient architecture, just seeing, you know, the things, the cobbled streets and, you know, the this these strange uh, winding alleyways of all of these cities was wonderful. Europe has been a place that's always been very receptive to, to your work. And um, it's a place where you spend most of your time touring, really, isn't it? Yes. Well, I mean, I, uh, I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm an American and uh, I, I am an all, I'm every inch American. I'm American in my, my way of being and the way I perform and how I, um, you know, how I what I desire from rock and roll or desire from being a performer. But because I'm an artist and I gravitate toward art and literature, they're more open to the fact that you can, uh, with equal ability and equal intelligence, be a poet and um, a rock and roll performer, a visual artist, and uh, they don't separate them or call you a rocker that dabbles in poetry. You're an artist and mm. everything that you do is under that canopy. So I think it's been more welcoming. But, you know, for me, at the end, performance is about the people. So wherever I go, it becomes about them and uh, how I spend my other hours uh, for my own uh, studies or uh, my own aesthetic uh, preferences is another thing. But you you get on stage and I don't care if it's, you know, whether it's uh, St. Louis or it's Paris or Iceland, it doesn't matter where I am. It's it's all about connecting with the people. We talked about coming back to perform live again. Before that, like everybody else, you were stuck at home for a, for a chunk of time. And I'm wondering how you how you spent that time. Did you have a bubble? Did you have a family bubble? Were you alone? Did you read more? Did you find any new interests? Well, it was very difficult. Um, we were just about to go on a world tour because really I was, you know, anticipating that I would soon be 75 and uh, I was 73 then and that I might be winding down as a performer. And um so we had a world tour. I was primed for it. I was physical. I had trained for it. I had packed for it. I was ready. And uh, we did two last jobs at um, one of my favorite places um, and the Fillmore in, in San Francisco. And then we were about to embark on a world tour. And um, two days later, we were back in New York uh, 
which we thought was for a 14-day quarantine, mm. and which, of course, we all know became a stretch of two years. I came back to New York and still with my suitcase ready, thinking we would go soon. And I was not at all mentally prepared for being still, for being rooted. I was mentally and physically prepared to see the world <laughs> and to, um, you know, and get on a tour bus, go from city to city. Um, so that was very difficult for me because I don't like being rooted anywhere. I was rooted in New York City. Most of my friends, um, the few that I have here, um, some of them European, went back home. Uh, my band lives in different states. My daughter, my son, lives in Michigan. So my daughter, Jessie, she was really the person who uh, sort of took care of me in that being 73, being uh, having a bronchial condition and being in New York City. And it was very bad. A lot of people and people I knew, fr uh, friends I had died. And so Jessie uh, was very adamant that I you know, stay prudent, mostly stay in the house. I took walks at night when no one was on the street. Jesse got my groceries and I did all my cooking and I paced a lot. And I know this is probably more information than you need, but I did like, I felt, I've said it before, I felt like a wolf. You know, I felt like a caged wolf. I just paced a lot, but I did a lot of writing. I did a lot of studying but it was it, it it was very difficult for me because I was extremely restless. I understood what I mean. I know about pandemics. I understand about pandemics. I know how they work. So I was I did a lot of studying on the the uh, Spanish flu pandemic in the in 1918. I knew exactly what the steps were, and um, but it still was very hard. But Thankfully, I'm lucky. I had a daughter who took care of me. I had enough assets to take care of myself, and I have other vocations. So I was able to write and uh, read, and um, and also I worked on uh, the book that uh, is coming out in November that was inspired by my Instagram. So I I was able to do some work. Jessie is a writer and performer herself, as well as being a, a co-founder of Pathway to Paris, yes. which I know that you've become involved with. And I know that I, I read somewhere where you were quoted saying that, you know, you think that climate change is the issue of, of our time. Can you speak to that a little bit? Well, I mean, I've always been concerned about this, even as a young, uh, a very young person. And these are things, even if you listen to hard rain's going to fall, you know, um, about, you know, these corporations polluting our rivers and the poison that's uh, running uh, uh, through through nature because of corporations. I mean, this isn't a new idea. These are things that we've been fighting about and speaking about uh, that Ralph Nader has been fighting, that so many people have tried to address this. Jimmy Carter addressed this. And now, because we couldn't get any real global response to this, um, we're in a crisis, a really uh, terrible crisis. And yes, I think it's the most important, the most important issue that any of us are faced with. And I'm very proud of my daughter for um, uh, starting a uh, nonprofit and being involved in, uh, in this effort.
And, um, you know, it's just all anybody has to do is look around. I mean, traveling myself, I was traveling and there were fires everywhere in Europe. It was the heat in Europe I've never seen, 107 in Paris, France. I've never been in Paris in 50 years that it was more than 82. Mm. Uh, you know, it's just, it's it's heartbreaking to see rivers dried up and it's everywhere, of course, in America, but you go everywhere and, you know, young people say, Patty, help us. I'm from Portugal and it, Portugal is burning. Nobody even knows all our forests are burning. There's no, the water is drying up. I mean, everywhere, young people are concerned about this. And, um, you know, we need such a massive global reset. And, uh, you know, I could go on about this for hours, but of course it can be very painful and depressing. But just uh, the simple answer to your question is, yes, this concerns me. It concerns me, concerned me when I was younger. It concerns me every day of my life. It's interesting. I have um, younger children than you, but I have 20 year old twins and they have a hard time believing when I speak to them about the fact that people like myself and and, and you um, were talking about this and aware of it 40 plus years ago. And they don't understand how the government, I guess, couldn't figure out how to speak to other governments and, you know, agree on some kind of, as you said, a, a, a reset. And, and I guess just to sort of finish up on this, do, do you have hope, belief, perhaps, that the demographic and generational shifts that we're experiencing will lead us to 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 a better place in, in addressing this on a global scale? I I pin my hopes on our youth. I mean, that's another thing the pandemic did. Another terrible aspect of it is there a global climate change movement was really growing. I saw it in Europe. Um, Greta Thunberg, but uh, uh, millions of young people, there were kids gathering, you know, to march for uh, climate change and to demand it that looked like Woodstocks all over Europe. And in a day, it was ended. In a day, you know, everything was shut down. And as it was shut down, we polluted more. We used more and more and more and more plastics, more and more and more chemicals. And, and now, People have just come back with like a vengeance, you know, you know, they're just, it's like, they're just want to celebrate because they're finally, you know, feel after being uh, confined for two years, but the vast majority does not want to have to deal with more bad news, but it's, it's there. It was there before the pandemic. It's worse after the pandemic. And, you know, your kids are absolutely right. I had the same frustration, you know, as a teenager, as a, in my 20s. I remember also how America, it's not just governments, it's the people have to also step up. Jimmy Carter spoke about this and asked people, you know, to not use so much air conditioning, not use so much gas. And they hated him for it. And Reagan came out and said, use all the gas you want. We're America. Use everything, you know get two cars. Jimmy Carter was pushed out. And it's really, it's not just governments that need to step up. It's the people, you know, with it, take a willingness to sacrifice and uh, change their mindset. I thought it would take some disasters to do this. Well, we've had disaster upon disaster. It's like gun control. How many massacres of children do we need to finally uh, wake up? 
people just they they have their own personal agenda in the world what what is that is that is that just part of who who we are as as humans you know you talk about the 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 gun massacres and it's exactly the same thing really i mean i remember when sandy hook happened and nothing came as a result of that more guns sold than after sandy hook yeah they said the amount of guns that were bought after that because people are were afraid their guns were going to be taken away well i don't know why anyone there it's been proven over and over an ak-47 it's not for hunting deer. It's not for anything but killing, killing another human being. It's not for protecting your home. You could get a shotgun and shoot somebody in the knee. Sure. Stop them, you know, but instead people have AK-47s. You know, it's, I don't know. It, it's, I think part of it is it comes from a lack of a humanist viewpoint. Humanist meaning stepping back and seeing how every action impacts the greater good and not just your good, but the greater good. And when you start, you know, just being concerned with how things impact you and your club or your specific environment, um, you turn your back on the whole world or not even turn your back. You just ignore them, ignore that we are living, whether we like it or not. It's a global concern mm. because our because of the way we are with guns, it's filtering into Cuba. It filters into the consciousness of other countries. Other people, you know, they see the supposed freedom to go out and express yourself with a gun in America, and they want it too. And believe me, this isn't going to, it's going to trickle into other societies. As we're recording this in uh, mid-August of 2022, I know you've got a, a few more shows coming up later this year, but I, I also was told you're going to be in Paris, one of your favorite cities, I think maybe your favorite city, for the month of October yes. at uh, the uh, Centre Pompidou for Evidence, which is a multidisciplinary exhibition. Oh, thank you. <laughs> that you've helped create for the museum. Uh, and you've also got your Instagram Polaroid book coming out in November. So there's a couple of exciting things coming up for you in the in the later part of this year. First of all, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what's going on at the uh, Centre Pompidou? I know it's the Sandwalk Collective who've got objects and creations of yours that you've collected over your travels, original photographs, texts and pieces. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I've done three albums with uh, Soundwalk Col Collective. Uh, one uh, interpreting the poems of Rimbaud, the other Artaud, and the third being um, René Dumal. And um, the way that we work, Soundwalk Collective is spearheaded by my friend Stefan, who is a world traveler. He went to Ethiopia. He went to Harar, where uh, Rimbaud lived. He met Sufis. He had them chant Rimbaud's poems. He would tape the wind, tape the, the sounds of the people in the environment. He, he did this in Mexico for our toe. He brings all of this back. And then I go in the studio and I listen to it all. And I read poetry, interpret the poems of Rimbaud or Artaud. And we have done three of these. And all of the things that both of us amass, my research, my drawings, my photographs, um, sometimes his uh, pieces of nature it could be rocks, it could be a block of wood, whatever, all the things that he's brought back from all of his travels, what I've done from my study and inner travels, we're putting together in a um, sort of a, a light and sound installation 
in this huge room at the Pompidou. And um, it's it's really is our exhibition. I, I'm not really so modern. He's a very 21st century artist. He's uh, in that he works with technology, sound and lights, which I know very little about. And so it's melding the two of our, my 20th century sensibilities with his 21st century sensibilities. So, and we'll do a certain amount of performance and we'll mm. see how it evolves. So yes, October in Paris, it's not, not so bad. Not too shabby. I'll probably do some side trips, but uh, I'll be in, Octo uh, in Paris. And then tell us a little bit about your, your Instagram uh, Polaroid book that comes in November. It was inspired by my Instagram, again, done during the pandemic. I got very involved in my Instagram and uh, the pandemic because being so isolated, it gave, and I'm not one for social media, it gave me some contact with the people, um, aesthetic con con uh, contact, uh, more cultural contact. And I, I, I like this, uh, this way of communicating. And uh, many people suggested I do a book, but I, I did a book. It's 365. It's called A Book of Days, 366, actually, uh, counting leap year images, uh, one for each day, many of them Polaroids, but also many of them cell phone pictures, uh, pictures that I've taken, you know, all over the world and pictures of my my family or friends and and also graves that I've visited artists that I admire, many of them departed, you know, from uh, Joan Didion to Sam Shepard and to John Coltrane and saying something. It's very much set up. It has a, each page has an image and then a message. And um, and I'm hoping that it will uh, be inspiring and if not entertaining for people because there it's so there's so many different things. I have a Iranian mathematician and you know a, a few uh, uh, scientists and 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 sculptors and uh, jazz musicians and my children and my late husband and Puccini's piano. You know, there's there's all kinds of things in there. So I'm hoping that it will be uh, it'll appeal to people. Well, as a fan of your Instagram account, I'm very much looking forward to to seeing that. Thank you. It's also new. I mean, there are some things that I took from my Instagram because they were good images or they were popular. But most of it was, you know, done with with the idea of being inspired by the by Instagram. I I really, um, you know, it's I, my daughter showed me how to do it. She was my first follower. Now there's over a million people. And I just find it still such a nice way to communicate in a very simple, direct and positive way uh, with the people. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's the only place on social media that I really have any interest, to be honest with you. I, you know, Thank you. in my job, I have to do other social media things, but I don't enjoy them. Instagram is kind of fun because, you know, who doesn't like pictures and just a little bit of commentary? And I, I do enjoy your uh, posts and the inspiration that obviously that's given you to do, to do the book. So let's jump into these. Uh, this is like my little Proust musical questionnaire. What is your first musical memory? Well, I mean, really, probably my mother used to sing to me. My mother had a beautiful voice. She was a jazz, sort of, sort of a jazz singer like June Christie uh, when she was younger. 
So really the sound of my mother's voice. But when I think of a major, if you wanted, we're asking about a real, my first real visceral moment with music was probably when I was about five or six years old. My mother was taking me to Bible school and we passed the little clubhouse where the young teenage boys were listening to their to music on a little singles machine. And they were playing uh, probably Tutti Frutti. In any event, it was Little Richard. And there was a little girl dressed to go to Bible school. That voice, Little Richard, he just, I got so excited that I let go of my mother's hand and ran right for it. And I'll I'll never forget that moment. It was just like, it was a call to positive arms. What about buying music? What was the first music you bought with your own money? We didn't really have much money to um, uh, buy things back then. And the 50s, um, I got 50 cents an hour babysitting when I was a little older. And uh, I mean, I don't re really remember what the first single I bought, uh, but I remember buying um, the album uh, Nina Simone at Town Hall. I remember buying Coltrane's favorite things. And I remember it was actually my mother who bought me my first Bob Dylan album out of a 99 cent bin. And that was uh, another side of Bob Dylan. I listened to the radio. I didn't own many of my own records, but we had great radio back then. So, you know, you could listen to uh, all the new R&B songs, every song. I just, you know, I love the Crystals and I love the Shirelles and all of these. Uh, yeah, sorry. I don't have a better answer, but... It's a great answer. I mean, you're telling me that you were inspired and influenced by the R&B and jazz greats of the day, which is just amazing. Yeah, well, I went from, you know, because when I was a kid, it was all about dancing. You know, it was all about, you know, U.S. Bonds or whoever had the song, all these great R&B songs you could dance to or cry to, you know, <laughs> right. Jackson or something because some boy didn't like you. Yeah. But went from that to like 15 years old, discovering a more expansive world through Coltrane, through Roland Kirk, and then um, activism through Joan Baez when I was 16, and then Bob Dylan, and it just kept going. So I've seen in my lifetime, I've been very lucky to have pretty much seen the whole evolution of rock and roll and embraced it. <laughs> so so talking about seeing, what about live? What about concerts? Do you remember the first concert you went to with, without any adult supervision? Well, we again, we didn't have back in early 60s. And again, we, it didn't have the income to go to concerts, but the very first concert or how, where I saw live music was probably around 64 in that area, they had Mo the Motown Review brought their bus uh, to the airport drive-in in Philadelphia. So for $5 a car load, you could see the Motown Review. So of course, you couldn't imagine how many kids were stuffed in a car, you know, the one kid that had a car. I was skinny, so I was in a trunk with this, the smallest guy, and I and we were like curled up in the trunk, and we got went into the uh, airport drive-in in Philly. And we saw, oh my gosh, they had a big curtain on stage. And I guess there was an orchestra behind it because you never saw the musicians. Got it. But they were singing live and we and they all did a couple songs. We saw Marvin Gaye. 
Benny King, Smokey Robinson. Smokey Robinson introduced the monkey, the, the dance, the monkey. And by the time the song was over, the whole, just the whole place, um, people were monkeying. Was doing the monkey. Was doing the monkey. But the greatest moment was right at the end, Benny King and Smokey Robinson walked this kid on stage, about 13-year-old kid, little skinny kid with a bow tie and uh, dark sunglasses and a big chromatic harmonica. And it was Stevie Wonder. He had just turned 13 and he had a very popular song, of course, Fingertips. Uh -huh. And he did Fingertips. He was introduced, little Stevie Wonder, and they stayed on stage, you know, flanking him. And he did Fingertips. And I thought the world was going to explode in joy. And that was the first live, um, the live show I ever saw. Every single artist you mentioned is just so important in the in the history of uh, of rock and roll or R and B and or just music, popular music. And God bless them; they finished, got in a bus, and probably did four or five of those a day. I'll never forget it. I didn't see that many concerts when I was young because, again, uh, finances. I got to see Joan Baez. I got to see her introduce Bob Dylan. I did see. Uh, Bob Dylan, uh, really early, like 65. And I, I saw the Rolling Stones in a um, college auditorium, you know, with a very small stage with Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells opening them. I only saw a few concerts, but they were all awesome. They were pretty good. Yeah. You know, you mentioned dancing a little bit earlier. What do you, what do you listen to today? When, when you want to dance? Well, you know, sometimes I go on the YouTube and I just, uh, I like look for all these songs that I loved, like Maureen Gray, Today's the Day, a song I love to dance to. I'll do like songs like that, Heat Wave or the songs I like to dance to. And then there's just like more modern, uh, sometimes uh, like R.E.M. does really good dance songs of Fleet Foxes. It could be, uh, but I do listen to a lot of the old songs that I, I'm very grateful for <laughs> the YouTube to be playing these songs. You can go there and and find them. I never thought I'd be able to find uh, Maureen Gray's Today's the Day. And it's like one of the great dance. It's just, it just, it just, just makes you so happy. But um, I still do that. Yeah. <laughs> now you're, you're a writer. And I think that, you know, melancholy comes with the territory to a certain extent. So forgive me if I ask you, what do you listen to when you're feeling perhaps a little sad? I... I don't court my sadness because I have such deep sadness. Uh, if I, if I, um, sometimes I'll listen to something like my husband and I like to listen to Beethoven together. He loved, uh, and he loved Coltrane and Beethoven. And sometimes it's just music that the music in itself isn't sad, but the circumstances in which you embraced it were sad you never know what will make you sad. You know, I could play a song that I loved and made me so happy when I was young. And then all of a sudden I can see my whole life, you know, and it just, you know, when my parents were alive, my husband, my brother, my friends, and, or a song that Robert and I really liked. So it just happens all the time that I'll hear a song that brings out a certain heartache or something. 
But I think if I want to be alone in a certain state, I'll probably listen to like uh, the the last aria in Tristan and Isolde. I mm. really love uh, opera, and I often will listen to uh, Wagner or just the end, uh, the end of Tosca. There's such beautiful, heartbreaking arias in in some of these uh, operas, and I'll I'll listen to them and uh, sometimes have a good cry, <laughs> and then continue on. You're talking about how you know music can be a trigger, right? I mean, that's the power. Sometimes it's a tri- it, it's a trigger accidentally. Like I said, you can hear. Like I heard, uh, I was somewhere in that song. Jeremiah was a bullfrog. You know that uh, a three dog night song. My brother loved this song and uh, and uh, joy to the world. Joy to the world, you know, not a song that I particularly care about, but my late brother loved this song. And I was just somewhere and it came on and I couldn't stop crying. I just, I, first of all, I was so happy to hear it because I could access him. And then the pain of his loss was, it just made me, I went from being really, I went through many emotions. So certain songs trigger that. Other things like going, if I'm in a certain mood, I'll just go and listen to opera and just be transported. So I don't look to music when I'm, I look to music to be transported. What about music and images? I guess at the, in the early 80s when MTV came along and, and people started making videos for songs, before that there were just sort of little films that artists who had some money or a friend who was a filmmaker made, but then we had videos. And I'm wondering, how did you experience that at all? Because I know the 80s were uh, a little bit of a different time for you. And, and do you have a favorite music video? Not particularly. I mean, I really, um, we lived a pretty uh, simple family-oriented life in in the 80s. But uh, sometimes, because Fred was always really curious about music and what was happening, we at night when the kids were sleeping or just at night, we'd listen. He'd put on uh, MTV and um, we'd see what was what was happening, what was going on, and uh, that's how I discovered REM, which I really lo- loved. I I mean, I I I just fell in love with them, and I used to like. Um, I liked a lot of Madonna um, videos. I liked just like a prayer. That was a really good video. Fantastic video. Um, you know what video I really liked? Um, and people would be really surprised. I really liked the the take on take on me. Oh, aha! With the sort of scribbled sort of pencil cartoons. I just kept hoping the him and the girl would get back would get together. You know, and she would be able to live with him forever in cartoon world. Oh, and I like uh, Smooth Criminal. Smooth Criminal was a great video. Uh, because the, the, the dance sequence that Michael Jackson does was as close to Fred Astaire as one is going to get. Um, so I like that. But uh wasn't really fixated on, on the videos. I, again, I would listen to the songs, and if they were good to dance to, I would be more in, involved in dancing. My husband, I remember my husband and son, really loved Green Day and they would uh, toward the end of Fred's life and they would um, uh, wait for the Green Day video. But I really, um, I remember talking to Clive Davis about this and 
in the very beginning, he was uh, a little concerned that people would be more fixated on image and not really listening to the music. He was so music oriented, but, um, and really I, I just, I'm just happy to listen to music and dance. I loved, uh, how do I know what he's thinking? Yeah. Um, that Whitney Houston song. Um, she was so engaging, really just so engaging. And that song was again, another great song to dance to, but for me, the the greatest rock and roll image for me is any old footage of Jimi Hendrix. Can can you expand on that a little bit? What was it about Hendrix that still makes you feel that way all these years later? He had everything. He was, um, you know, he died when he was twenty seven years old. He had already done such a transporting body of work and was just beginning. He had a vision of the future. Um, a vision of creating a, a sort of a peace movement through music and building a language of peace through music. He uh, aspired to be a, a poet. I mean, he didn't think of himself so much as a poet, but he was a really great lyric writer and he was beautiful and had, you know, there was, he had everything you would want out of not only a rock and roll star, but someone who really cared about uh, the state of music, about the people. And uh, yes, he sadly was careless or, you know, I know that he didn't want to die. He didn't commit suicide. He wasn't that self-destructive. He wasn't uh, like Jim Morrison, I think, was a very self-destructive fella. But Jimi Hendrix was just, it was just a bad accident that we lost him. And he had a lot of similar aspirations to Ornette Coleman to create new languages. And he, he was just awesome. <laughs> what he, I, I just, uh, there hasn't been anyone um, to me that uh, had all of that because also he came from a more innocent time and all of the aspirations. I mean, the people, all of our bands or all of the people who helped build our cultural voice no matter how indulgent they got or if they got messed up on drugs or, you know, got beguiled by fame and fortune, still their impetus, how they began, they wanted to change the world. It wasn't all just be rich, famous, have have power and, uh, you know, and be um, the whatever. They really wanted to have a better world, to have a new world, create a new world, you know, and I... I just think that our my generation and a lot of these these people were only a couple of years, maybe three years older than me. Mm. And we lost so many of them, but they really, um, despite you know, so many mishaps or whatever, love was the was the root of their pursuits. And uh, I met a lot of these people, and um he had Jimi Hendrix with all his supposed worldliness, he maintained his innocence. He maintained uh, in terms of, he had a humanist point of view. You never felt that, you know, a sense of like exclusion from his music. I only got to meet him once, but I had a nice long conversation with him. He was very inclusive. He was, um, well, anyway. He was only 27 years old. 
When when did you meet him? I met him not long before he died at the opening of his studio. I was maybe 23. He was 27. Maybe I was in any event it was August, August 26, to be exact, uh, 1970. And they opened Electric Lady Studio on 8th Street. He did. And I was a young, I was young poet, but I was also a journalist and I reviewed a lot of records and uh, to make extra money. And um, I was invited to the uh, party and uh, <laughs> I went to it, but um, I was a little shy going into this party and um, it just, you had to go down these stairs and then go into this area and go into the, re you know, the actual recording studio. And there was all these like people who are a little older than me who were like, you know, a lot of them well-known or, you know, and I just felt a little out of my element. So I didn't have the nerve to go in. So I sat on the stairs and just watched stuff. And uh, he had to leave because he had a flight. I think he had a flight because he had to play Isle of Wight. And he was going and meandering up the stairs and he saw me. And uh, I had this straw hat and like this long polka dot dress and combat boots on and mm -hmm. sitting there and and he said to me, hey, you're not going into the party? And I said, oh, um, well, I'm kind of shy. And he said, you know, I'm sort of shy, too. He said, I, believe it or not, I'm shy at parties. And then he, you know, he he started talking to me and he I don't know why, but he told me about what he was going to do with the studio. And one of the things that he told me and I've written about this, so but I would tell it a thousand times. He planned after this tour, he wanted to go to Woodstock and have musicians come from all over the world, everywhere, whether it was from India or, you know, Africa or, you know, Germany, wherever, have people come from all over the world with their instrument of choice and sit in a wide circle and start playing. And that's why I said it had a Ornette Coleman kind of sensibility. But he wanted, everybody to play if it took a month to play and play and play and get through all of strange discordance or instruments that keys didn't match whatever until they found a harmonious sound a music and then he said the language of peace you dig and i was like oh, yeah <laughs> and then he went off you know no wonder he left such a mark on you, you know, taking the time to just have that conversation with you on his way out. And never to return because he, that was August 26th and he died like, I think on mid-September. Mm, in London, yeah. And uh, I was heartbroken. And back then I wasn't singing or anything. I wasn't even performing poetry. It never occurred to me that I would be coming back to that studio to record my own record. So um, that was probably, you know, I, I don't even know how to think about that, but it's, uh, I was very conscious when we were recording horses of a certain mission. And one of the missions was to do something worthy of recording in the studio that he never got to return to. It's a special place. I've had the good fortune to work there a couple of times, and it really is just, you know, you walk in and you, you just feel it, right? Well, it's very similar to it was back then. 
I mean, of course, the board has changed because technology evolves, but it's very, very similar. The bathrooms are the same. The murals are the same. Right. The vibe is, for, you know, I, I don't, I don't feel like so many other places where you think, uh, well, it's all different. Um, you go down their stairs. I, I can still see myself sitting on that stairwell. Do you have a, a recent musical discovery that you'd like to share with our listeners? And it doesn't have to necessarily be a new band or a new artist. Uh, it's just somebody that is uh, new to you. The things that I listen to are so eclectic that uh, that's hard to answer. And um, I tend to stick with the things I like, you know, like I'll spend a whole night listening to my bloody Valentine. But like I found this song called Small Town Boy. I forget the name of the band. Oh, Bronsky Beat? Yeah. Yeah. I never heard that song before. And I listened to it about 20 times. It's a good song to dance to, but it's also a great song. And, uh, you know, and I find these songs and I think, oh, this is a new thing. And then find out it was like 10 years old or something. But um, right now I happen to be listening to um, a lot of, uh, I'm writing a lot. So I'm listening to soundtracks because uh, I find it, you know, I, I want to listen to music that uh, allows me to sort of sink into myself. And my favorite, because um, I can never remember, I actually, in case you ask me this question, I like the Ghost in the Shell um, soundtrack to the uh, anime, and the fellow's name is Kenji Kawai. And I listened to this guy, Daniel Hart, who did uh, the Green Knight movie, and I listened to Hans Zimmer's Dune soundtrack. So truthfully, I've been listening to that. but also. Funny enough, I um, accidentally, in my travels of looking for other stuff, I heard, um, who was it that I heard singing? Oh, Adriana Grande. Ariana Grande. What a singer. That girl has such a range. I was like so um, captivated by her range and her interpretations of other people's songs. And uh, girl can sing. The girl can sing. I love to listen to singers sing. I learn quite a bit. I'll listen to Maria Callas or I'll listen, you know, to Adele or I'll listen to Rihanna. I listen and see how they, uh, their inner narrative, how, how they um, build a song. Because I'm not really a natural, a great singer. I mean, I, I'm a more of a performance singer. I don't have a real wide range. I know what I can do. I'm not saying that apologetically, but I can learn how to uh, build a song. That's what I learned from other singers. I'll see how did they go from here to there. So I, I, I'm not even answering your questions. Poor Proust. I'm sorry. I think you are. You gave me a great range of uh, of artists there that you've been listening to recently, and really, that's that's the answer to the question. I've got two more left, but there's one thing that just cropped up when you were talking about. Uh, listening to uh, other artists and uh, and the narrative uh, and the songwriting, I guess, and and I believe that you are in the process of getting ready to to do a new album. Is is that right? Next year I'll do one. Funny enough, I was writing a song last night, which is really rare, um, really for Fred, and um, I just think it has to happen organically. Uh, I've been very immersed in writing and. Uh, 
performing because I just feel that uh, as you know, I'm heading towards 76 and I have to make choices as to what hell I use my time. Spend your time. Yeah. And, um, but I do want to do one more record, but I only want to do a record if something evolves into something I think worthy of putting out in the world. I think Bango was a really good record in Constantine's dream. I, did a certain thing on that that made me very satisfied as an artist. But uh, there, there's so many people, there's so many artists, there's so much music, so many people that have new things to offer. Uh, if I do a record, I want it to be something uplifting, something worthy of people's time. I already have 12 or 13 out, uh, albums out there. So if I think I can do something worthy, I'll do it. Talking about how many artists there are out there and all the, the music that's out there, do you have a, a band or an artist that you personally love but perhaps feel they never quite got the break that they, they deserved or that their material warranted? It's such a subjective thing. I think that television, Tom Verlaine, Tom Verlaine is one of our, it's one of the, just the most uh, gifted musicians and a great songwriter and such a uh, unusual guitarist and has influenced so many people. And uh, I'm not certain that Tom Verlaine has got him, gotten his. Um, yeah. Marky Moon is just one of the greatest albums ever recorded, in my humble opinion. And, and it's Tom. I mean, Tom, I knew Tom when he was quite young. And um, as a performance band, yes, they all were very strong. Richard Hell was a great uh, performance image. He did some interesting uh, uh, performance pieces and songs. But Tom, as a musician, as a as a poet, as a, as a guitarist, um, was really um, and is really extraordinary. And um, I hope that he'll uh, and I'm sure he'll be revisited. But you know, I I think that he uh, has been so influential. And yes, I would like to see him get, you know, uh, stronger accolades. Yeah. So, so this uh, this last question is one that I think I'm starting to evolve as a question. The more people I speak to, and I'll tell you what the question is, and then I'll expand on it a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, the question is, what band or artist is your guilty pleasure? And I, I have a feeling that you perhaps don't have any guilty pleasures, but is there is there an artist that you like that perhaps we would be surprised to find out? that you like. I have so many guilty pleasures. <laughs> the other day, here's real extreme, one could call one. The other day, I heard Harry Styles is in town. He's like doing 15 nights at Madison Square Garden. 15? 15 nights. And I thought, oh my gosh, what is, and I didn't know a single Harry Styles song. So um, I put his name and the song, he was doing the song Girl Crush. Uh, live uh, in London or something. I found it so touching and he has a really nice voice and he's certainly engaging. And so, yeah, I mean, I didn't go down the rabbit hole with Harry Styles, but I listened to the song a couple of times and I thought he did a very touching, a moving uh, a job with that song. But like, you know, I like pop songs. I'll listen to the same Adele song 20 times or I'll listen to my gosh, I know these aren't guilty pleasures, but it's just like Rihanna 
stay. I want you to stay. I listened to that song so many times. I just loved her voice and um, was a good video of her in the bathtub too. Very good video. <laughs> and uh, well, it was beautifully shot. But um, I don't get embarrassed about anything. I mean, for a person like me who will, uh, you know, listen to the same Maria Callas uh, aria over and over again, you know, what's guilty? I mean, I, I listen to what I want, you know, and it's just, um, I remember in the, like, in the seventies, I mean, when punk rock was really strong, yeah, all of a sudden you were supposed to be too cool for a lot of stuff. And people just didn't understand how a person like me would be like beguiled by some pop song or whatever. And, you know, talking about sixties artists. And it's like, I would just like, you know, punk rock is about freedom and there's a whole world of music given to us. And, uh, I might get struck by any of it. There is certain genres that I really don't like, but I'm not going to talk about them because that's not very nice. But yeah, I'm, um, I refuse to be guilty. <laughs> I refuse to be guilty because, you know, I'm uh, dancing to Fleet Foxes or whoever. I don't know if these people are popular or not popular. I found one strange guy, and that's so I'm going to finish with this. I found, here's this song, uh, which always makes me cry. It's called uh, No More I Love Yous. Annie Lennox, yeah. That song came out when my husband died, and uh, it makes me sad one day. I did want to hear it, but I accidentally heard the guy who wrote it sang it, and I couldn't even tell you his name. It was uh, a very interesting um, interpretation, but it wasn't an interpretation. He wrote the, he, it was his song. So... I learned about that. I found that very... Uh... I see, uh, just having a quick look while we're speaking, it's uh, written by David Freeman and Joseph Hughes. So I guess one of those guys must have recorded it originally. Beautiful song. And of course, Annie Lennox's voice is just stunning. Yeah, she does it beautiful. Uh, but um, I'm going to just make sure that I have the right uh, uh, the, the right fella that did it um uh, it's called the lover speaks so i don't know if they um if that is that but oh wow did jimmy iovine produce that yeah he did i just saw that oh my gosh i'm gonna have to tell him i have listened to this fella's version many many times because um i was very very taken taken with it but I don't know. Just, it's, it's just, this is just some obscureness that I happen to think of. You're making me think of obscure things. I don't know. There's a whole thing of music out there. You know, I might today be listening to go to YouTube and watch uh, Glenn Gould play piano. I, I, you know, I'm all over the place. Thank God for our musicians. Um, whether or not they're my type or not, I'm uh, grateful for them all. Absolutely. And uh, Eclectic is my middle name, as, as you probably know. So as we're ra wrapping this up, it's a Sunday afternoon for you as we're speaking, Sunday uh, morning here, here in Los Angeles. First of all, thank you for taking the time to, to speak to me. It's been lovely to uh, see you and speak to you. And uh, we always end up with this question. How are you feeling right now? Uh, I'm feeling really happy. I'm feeling actually like Actually, I'm feeling like uh, putting on uh, Marine Grace Today's the Day and doing some dancing. 
sounds good. Patty Smith, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks, Nick. Bye-bye. The Sound of Success is hosted and produced by myself, Nick Harcourt, for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Keita Klein. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple, sparknetwork.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>